I am not an innocent, not bystander. An innocent bystander. I am a threat, am a threat, to, my threat enemy. to my enemy. I am powerful. I am powerful. I am strategic, strategic and, bold. and bold. I will not sit idly by. I will take ground. I will advance. I will tear through my enemy. And my enemy will hate me. I will not avoid the difficult fight. I will fight. I will be wounded. I will be targeted and I will bleed. I will not tire. My wounds will be healed. I will see tragedy. I will feel pain. But I will be restored. My feet will not stumble. My hands will hold fast. I will not be intimidated. Hey, chapter 10, page 123, evidences for the Christian faith. That's right. Well, I could better do that again. Evidences for the Christian faith. That's right. Uh, do you mean to believe to tell me that, uh, that uh, when you become a Christian, you're not checking in your brain at the door? What? Yeah, I said an amazing revelation tonight, Jordan. That's right. Uh, and do you mean to tell me that uh, it's not a blind leap in the dark, that somehow you are intellectually inept if you became a Christian? Oh, <laughs> Or if you don't even want to say that, you guys ever encountered that uh, before, in the pre-Jesus days? You heard about somebody becoming a Christian, but you don't know Christianese, so it usually comes across something like this. Hey, did you hear about Bob? He got religion. <laughs> like it's some sort of a plague, right? Okay. Well, we don't have to be ashamed. Hello. We need to get equipped. And that was our theme the last three times. First Peter 3.15 says, hey, give a defense for the hope that lies within us. We shouldn't be ashamed. You shouldn't be uh, uh, acting like, uh, you know, we're squeamish or whatever. You need to get equipped. And we saw that's the problem, though. We're not equipped, are we? And we don't take serious Peter's command there uh, in the Bible uh, that we need to always give a defense for the hope. We always need to be prepared, but we're not. So that's what we're doing in our study. So well, let's take a look. How do we know that you're not checking into your brain at the door? That our faith is founded uh, on fact, on factual information, logical information. It makes sense, okay? Uh, we saw, of course, the first time, well, what about the scriptures? Are they reliable? Yes, a great resounding reverberation that shook the sanctuary. Yes, yeah. Is the biblical text reliable? Yeah. They're getting there. Woohoo! The, the windows are going to pop. Uh, that's right. <laughs> and then we saw, we take a look. Well, how? Let's put it to the test. You lose, use some logic. Well, we took a look at the bibliographical test. How many of you guys remember that? Yeah, brought a tear to my eye too. Uh, the internal evidence test and of course the external evidence test. Now, that brings us to the top of page 128. That's right. Well, what about Jesus? Isn't that really what it boils down to? What about Jesus? You can get all kinds of questions wrong. You can get that uh, category on uh, uh, Jeopardy uh, if you ever get on that show. Anybody ever want to be on that show? Really? One person. Praise God, Jordan. 
uh, wants to be on that show. We can arrange that, hopefully, uh, for you sometime soon. That's right. But uh, uh, yeah, and you get some of those weird categories, and you can get that stuff wrong. Uh, somebody can do a pop quiz on you. You can get that wrong. Uh, you can open up that thing of Cracker Jacks and get that a nifty prize. Have you noticed they've really downplayed the prizes today? used to be cool, man. Now they're just like lick on tattoos or something. What's going on with that? But you know, they used to ask you those questions. You can get that wrong, but I tell you what, you don't want to get wrong Jesus. That's the question you don't want to get wrong. Now, so it's a very important question, obviously. Uh, the most important question, okay, on this side of heaven. Uh, and uh, so the point is, when people ask us some questions, which are good, what about Jesus? Uh, surely we know all the answers, right? Well, Tom, stop coming. Surely I don't see her tonight. She usually sits over there, but uh, we'll let you slide on that. Uh, but, uh, uh, well, that's what we're going to study tonight. What about Jesus? How can we know that he really was God in the flesh? How can we really know that he was the Messiah? Let's use some logic. Let's put our thinking caps on tonight. Let's try that. I know it hurts, but just try to strap it on. It's been a while that we've had him on. There we go. All right, let's get to go. Top of page 128. Who uh, was Jesus who he said he was? All right. Well, we've seen in our study in the deity of Christ, chapter 4. Remember those days, Jenna? Chapter 4. Three years ago. Anyway, that Jesus Christ claimed to be God, right? Open your Bibles to John chapter 8. Let's go ahead and read that text. Remind ourselves. Really? Are you serious? Gee, how many guys, has anybody ever said that to you? Oh, Jesus never claimed to be God. <laughs> exactly. It's like, man, have you ever even read the Bible? Uh, even just the book of John. I mean, uh, give me a break. Okay, John chapter 8. Let's go ahead and turn there. John chapter 8, of course, was written by. Yeah, yeah. What about uh, John chapter 7? Okay, yeah, John. It's called John for a reason. Uh, John chapter 8, verses 56 to 59. This is just one passage dealing with the deity of Jesus Christ. He was who he said he was, folks, and he said it himself. Okay? And that's the hypocrisy. If you're not going to listen to Jesus on the golden rule, do unto others as you'd have them do unto you, right? Everybody loves to quote that Christian, non Christian. Well, you might want to listen to this other thing he said too, okay? Uh, verse uh, 8, uh, or, or chapter 8, let's take a look. Verse 56, and uh, uh, let's take a look at what Jesus said. He says this, he says, Your father Abraham, he's speaking to the, the Jews there, rejoiced at the thought of seeing my day. He saw and was glad. And I said, what? You are not yet 50 years old, the Jews said to him, and you've seen Abraham? I tell you the truth, Jesus answered, before Abraham was born, I what? I am, which means he had to be in existence back then, which could only be if he was God. And of course, then he uses the phrase, I am, from Exodus, that was the name of God, right? And if you doubt that that was a claim to deity, notice the people's reaction. At this, they what? They slapped him on the back, gave him high fives, says, yo, yeah. No, they picked up stones to, to stone him. Jesus hid himself, slipping away from the temple guards. They wanted to kill him for doing that. But that's what he said. Flip over real quick while we're there, John chapter 20. One of the most obvious texts. Okay, and then we'll move on because we've already dealt with this. John chapter 20, taking a look at the account of Thomas. Okay, Thomas. And uh, verse 26, when you get there, say moo. Moo, that's a pretty good moo consensus. That's right. Uh, John chapter 20, verse 26 says, A week later, his disciples were in the house again. This is, of course, uh, post the resurrection. And Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it in my side. Stop doubting and believe. And Thomas said to him, my Lord and my what? And then Jesus said, don't you dare say that. That's not true. I'm just a great moral teacher. Oh no, he didn't rebuke him. He is God. 
Okay, and again, that's what we're seeing there. So uh, Jesus clearly said that he was God. And, and, and here's the point. He never claimed to be just another prophet or just a good moral man. He claimed to be God himself. The following is a quote from C.S. Lewis. He says, I am trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really what, what thing? Foolish thing. Now people say, oh, the exo-intellectual. Excuse me? If you have ever read the Bible and you're dealing with it logically and honestly, intellectually honestly, you saying that? Man, you're acting like a fool. That's what he says. I'm trying to prevent you from saying the foolish thing that people often say about him, Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept his claim to be God. What? Who made you the one who could pick and choose in the scripture? Right? Uh, he said, this is the one thing we must not say. A man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. Logically, he would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he's a poached egg. Now that's a chicken product, so you know that's wrong. You knew that was coming. Or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was Jesus and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come up with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us nor did he intend to. Right? So when somebody comes back to you and I and mocks the deity of Jesus Christ and says, well, he never said that. Or you mean to tell me that Jesus is God, blah, blah. What did they just tell you? Either never read the Bible and or, again, what's the common theme? They're just parroting what the media, the educational system, their peers have told them to think about Jesus, God, and the Bible. Right? And if you're going to make an authoritative statement on Jesus, let alone the scripture, you would think if you're intellectually honest, you'd at least read it at least once. But most people haven't even done that. And yet it comes across as if they're the expert on it, right? And just because you read it once, does that mean you're an expert? No. Okay. Might want to study it. What's, what's the theme? Discipleship, methetes, disciplined learner. It takes time, doesn't it? How many guys, and please, I hope you say in the affirmative, unless you just got saved today, you know a little bit more about the Bible. Thank you for that. You know a little bit more about the Bible than when you first got saved. Yay, all two of you. I gotta keep praying. Uh, but uh, what? Yeah, it's a, it's a process. It's a growth, okay? And just because you read it once, even that doesn't make an expert. Most people who make judgments about it, they haven't even read it. Come on, okay? You're the one that's being intellectually honest. You're the one who, as C.S. Lewis says, hey, you're the one that's spouting foolishness, nonsense. It's crazy. Why are we even continuing this discussion? And yet, oftentimes, when they bring that up, what's our response? Oh, 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 oh. What? I don't think so. Uh, let's have another discussion about intellectual dishonesty. Okay. Uh, let's take a look. That's Jesus. And that should be good enough. But God gives us even more witnesses that Jesus is who he said he was. The witnesses of the apostles. Let's take a look at that. He says this, or, or back up there a little bit. As we've seen in chapter 4, the deity of Christ, Jesus claimed to be God. And C.S. Lewis and many other scholars have concluded the only options in considering who Jesus was are, one, he was a liar, two, he was a lunatic, or three, he was the Lord God himself. And the correct answer is, do, 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 do. do you really need time to think about that? Come on. 
God. That's right, Tom God. And we're not even on Jeopardy. No other options exist, okay, period. We've already looked at the fact that the Bible has a large weight of evidence pointing to its accuracy and historical reliability. Now let's take a look at that historical evidence for the deity of Jesus Christ. Let's look at his apostles. The apostles were men handpicked by Jesus to be his what? Witnesses, right? That's what it says there, to all that he taught them. Well, how do we know we got it right? Well, what did Jesus say to the apostles? He left no stone unturned. He made sure of the accuracy. We've seen that before. He said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit, the comforter. And what's he going to do? He's going to give you power to roll around on the carpet and swing a lane from the chandeliers and do all this stuff. Goosebumps on top of your goosebumps. No, that's not what he said. You're going to, you're going to do that? And he says, I'm going to, uh, he's going to remind you of all the things that I taught you. Okay? So just in case man had a false and forgot God was going to bring it back to remembrance, okay? I'll just continue on. So they're his disciples uh, and witnesses. They spent three years becoming intimately acquainted with him. But when Jesus was arrested in the Garden of Gethsemane, all these men left him, fled. Uh, Peter denied uh, three times that he even knew Jesus, okay? And after the crucifixion of all the apostles, they went into hiding and were fearful. And these same men all eventually, though, gave their lives for proclaiming the same Jesus Christ as the risen Lord. Okay, in fact, most died cruel deaths for, what they, uh, for which they were proclaimed about Jesus. Okay, you got, you got a list over here on the top of page 129. I'm going to read to you a little bit more of an expanded list. Okay, a little bit more details. That's, that's, you got to have a little bit of details and what really happened to, I think, bring the point home with these guys. And if you ever read it, one, a really good book uh, to really curb your whining, they keep... They gave me cold french fries, Tom, at Wendy. I'm going to tell the manager. <laughs> you want to curb that rotten attitude? Which, by the way, Paul says, do everything without arguing or complaining so you can shine, not whine for Jesus. It's not a good commercial. Okay? You want to curb that? Listen to what the apostles went through. Excuse me? I think they'll take cold french fries any day of the week than this. Uh, James... Uh, the son of Zebedee, the elder brother John, he was led to a place of martyrdom. His accuser, the guy that turned him in, uh, repented as he was going to be killed because of James' uh, godly, extraordinary courage and undauntedness in facing death. He actually fell at the feet of John uh, and asked him to forgive him, and then he became a Christian himself. And then resolving that James should not receive the crown of martyrdom alone, they both were beheaded at the same time. That's, that's how he left. Okay, that was about AD 44. Philip was born in Bethsaida in Galilee, and uh, he was the first to be called by the name of disciple. He labored diligently in Upper Asia and suffered martyrdom in uh, Heliopolis in Phrygia. He was scourged, thrown into prison, and afterwards crucified in AD 54. Matthew, uh, whose occupation was a tax... Uh, collector or toll gatherer, was born at Nazareth. He wrote the gospel in Hebrew, Matthew, the, uh, which was afterwards translated into Greek by James the Less. The scene of his labors was at Parthia in Ethiopia, in which later, uh, the latter country, he suffered martyrdom, being slain with the halberd in the city of uh, Nanaba in AD 60. Halberd's kind of like a, looks like an axe, but it's also can be used as a spear too. So he was killed with that. Uh, James, uh, the brother of Jesus, Okay, uh, he was elected to oversee the churches in Jerusalem. We see that in the book of Acts. Okay, and uh, he was the author of the epistle of James. Uh, at the age of 94, 
okay, uh, he was uh, beaten and stoned by the Jews, okay, they had him at the church history records, they had him at the top of the temple, okay, and chucked him down. He survived the fall, miraculously, and so they beat his brains out with a fuller club, the club they used, I think, to beat clothes with. And we whine about our french fries. Wow. Matthias, of whom a less is known than the other disciples, elected to fill the vacant place of Judas. He was stoned at Jerusalem and then beheaded. Uh, Andrew, the brother of Peter, he preached to the Asiatic uh, nations, but on his arrival at Edessa, he was taken and crucified on a cross, the two ends of which were affixed transversely in the ground, hence the derivation of the term St. Andrew's Cross. Uh, Mark was born of Jewish parents of, of uh, tribe of Levi, uh, converted to Christianity supposedly by Peter, whom he served as his uh, uh, ammunicist or scribe, uh, and uh, who wrote the Gospel of Mark. Uh, he was dragged to pieces uh, by the people of Alexandria um, in uh, worship of their idol Serapis, uh, ending his life at their merciless hands. Dragged to pieces. You're dragging and there goes another piece of your body. Okay, Peter. Of course, Peter was condemned to death, crucified uh, at Rome. Uh, Nero uh, sought to put him to death, and, but he got word in advance that they were coming to get him. And so the church was saying, hey, Peter, you need to get out of here. And he started to leave the city, church history says. And, uh, but coming to the gate, he, quote, supposedly saw the Lord Jesus come to meet him. And, and, and so he said to Jesus, he said, Lord, where do you go? And to which Jesus uh, supposedly answered him, according to church history, I have come again to be crucified. Peter took this. Uh, meaning to understood that he needed to go back to the city where the church historian, uh, church father Jerome, say that he was crucified, Peter, uh, with his head down and his feet upward, okay, upside down, requiring because he said he was unworthy to be crucified in the same manner as his Lord. Paul, of course, was uh, uh, beheaded, uh, as we know, uh, after his unspeakable labors and great travail and promoting the gospel. Uh, he suffered too under the first persecution of uh, Nero. Uh, and uh, he was, uh, they went to go tell him the news, it's time for you to get your head chopped off by two guys named Ferrega and Parthamius and to bring word of his death. Uh, they, in coming to Paul, uh, uh, he was instructing them. Uh, they asked him to pray uh, for them that they might believe. So they became Christians. Paul led two guys to Christ right as he was getting ready to go uh, to heaven. Uh, a Jude, uh, commonly thought uh, Thaddeus, uh, he was crucified in Edessa, uh, AD 72. Bartholomew, he preached in several countries, translated the gospel of Matthew into the language of India and propagated it in that country. He was cruelly beaten and then crucified uh, by the idolaters there. Uh, Thomas, uh, also called Didymus, preached the gospel in Parthia and India where the uh, exciting the rage of pagan priests, he was martyred by being thrust through with the spear. Luke, uh, the author of that gospel, uh, he traveled with Paul through various countries and is supposed to have been hanged on an olive tree by idolish priests of Greece. Simon the Zealot preached the gospel in Muratina, Africa, even in Britain, and he was crucified A.D. 74. Uh, Barnabas uh, uh, of Cyprus, but of Jewish descent, his death was taking place at A.D. 73, where he was dragged out of a synagogue. They tortured him, and then they stoned him to death. And then John, the apostle John, uh, founded the churches, they say, of Smyrna, Pergamos, Sardis, Philadelphia, Laodicea, and Thyatira. Uh, uh, from Ephesus, he was ordered to be sent to Rome where it was affirmed that he was cast into a cauldron of boiling oil where he escaped by a miracle uh, without injury. 
And Domitian afterwards punished him to the Isle of Patmos where he wrote the book of Revelation and he was the only apostle to escape a violent death. Now here's the whole point. They bring this up. It says right here, taking into account the apostles' reaction before the resurrection, remember chicken livers, running, hiding, don't want to have nothing to do with them, denying three times, not just once, but three times. And he said, now you take in uh, what happens after Jesus rose from the dead and their defense to the death and what kind of a death? Horrible death, right? At any time, a lot of them was involved torture. So at some point you'd think they'd go, all right, you got me. <laughs> just kidding. <laughs> not one of them, okay? And so that's a, a proof of their belief that Christ was who he said he was based on their belief in his resurrection gives a strong proof for the resurrection of Jesus Christ, the bodily resurrection. It's crazy to think that these 12 men would die for the gospel if they knew that the resurrection had never occurred. That's insane. So you mean to tell me that Jesus rose from the dead? Yeah, because it would be the, one of the most insane comments to say that all these guys would die a horrible death for a lie. That's not, that's not, that's not logical. Right? Oh, somebody asked me a question about Jesus. They, they don't think he rose from the grave and I'm a weirdo. Bring this up to him. Always be prepared to give a defense. What are you scared of? We just got to do our homework. Uh, the specific example of the firm belief of the apostles was James, the brother of Jesus. Uh, James is called the apostle in Galatians 1. When Jesus was alive, James did not believe his brother to be the son of God. Okay, uh, James and his brothers and sisters. What? Jesus had sisters? Yeah, read your Bible. Uh, Matthew 13, go ahead and turn there. Let's take a look at that. Matthew 13. Now you guys got John. Matthew was written by Matthew. That's two for two. You guys are cooking now. Matthew 13. Let's take a look here. Verse 53. Matthew 13, verse 53, we'll start there anyway. 13, 53, a prophet without honor. All right, here's what he says. When Jesus had finished these uh, parables, he moved on from there and he came to where? His hometown, man, stomping grounds, right? And began teaching the people in their synagogue and they were amazed and they said, man, where, where did this man get this wisdom and, and these miraculous powers? They asked, is it, wait, wait a second. Isn't this the carpenter's son? You know, we grew up with this guy. Uh, we know him, right? Uh, uh, isn't this uh, uh, his mother's name Mary? And aren't his brothers James, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? And aren't all his what? Sisters with us? Now, how many guys realize that Jesus, this is a trick question, speak about Jeopardy. He had many brothers and sisters. Who was the oldest? That's right, Jesus, you got it right. Okay, uh, obviously with the virgin birth, okay. Uh, anyway, these were after that. Okay, uh, aren't all his sisters uh, with us? Uh, where did this man get all these things? And they what? They took offense at him. But Jesus said to him, only in his own hometown, in his own house, is a prophet without honors, and he couldn't do many miracles there because of their lack of faith, okay? And this is what he's bringing up. This is, this is uh, his, his brother James. This is the guy we just read. They didn't believe him. Okay, they're probably like, oh, come on. You ever got that relative, right? That thinks that they're Napoleon or something like that. I know, we don't want to raise our hands, do we? I have many historical figures, my, no. <laughs> right, but that's what his family was going through, man. Oh, 
Jesus, you know, I think other pastors, Jesus, uh, your mom and your bros are outside. They want to talk to you. You know, you're going around saying you're gone. The Messiah, come on. Can you come home now? You're bringing shame on us. We're the weirdos in the small hometown. Right? You ever grew up in a home, small town? Did back in Kansas, man. I mean, it's had one blinky light in the whole town, which didn't take very long to go from one end to the other. But it was such a small town that if you did one thing on one end, by the time you got home on the other, which is only a couple minutes, you already had a phone call from somebody and your mom. Right? So small town, they're saying, he's, oh, you know, that's what it is. And so, so look at his brother's response. Right? James, and that's what he's bringing this up. James and his brothers and sisters were probably humiliated by their brother's wild claims to deity, right? But something radical happened to his half-brother of Christ. Okay, this half-brother Christ. After Christ's resurrection and burial, James began to proclaim Jesus as the resurrected Christ. Remember, and then right here it admits the guy didn't believe him. Why the switch? And why such a horrible death? And they literally beat your brains out. I mean, you think after they chucked you off the temple, you say, all right. <laughs> you're right yeah you got me and he stayed there in fact i believe the church history also said that they had they uh, uh they they called him like camel knees or something because james they said prayed so much that his knees had such big calluses right and i think after they threw him off the temple he survived and he was praying and then that's when they were beating his brains out with the club how could you do that i'd say he must have saw something and that's what this says right here. Uh, he says, uh, began to proclaim the resurrected Christ, eventually become the most visible leader in the Jerusalem church. He later wrote in the epistle of James in the letter, he writes, James, a bond servant of God and of who? Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul records in his first letter to Corinthians that on one occasion, Christ appeared specifically to James after his resurrection. I think that's why he put up with what he did. Something happened that changed James from a man of unbelief to a man who believed so much in his brother's claim to deity that he went to the grave for it. Josephus, the historian, tells us he died stoned uh, and ananized the high priest. Uh, and then, they, you know, they chuck him off the temple. Uh, visible appearance by Christ in his, after his crucifixion is the only plausible explanation. All right? How do you, at some point, you're going to crack. If it's a lie, you're going to crack. But not one of them did. Not even his little brother. Okay, uh, the witness of prophecy. Let's take a look at that. Jesus, we've got his words. That should be good enough, right? You take a look at the apostles, man, including his own brother and his family who formerly doubted him. That should be enough. Well, let's take a look at prophecy. One of the most amazing facts at the bottom of 129 there uh, that verified the validity of scripture, period, as well as the fact that Jesus was who he said he was, was the Old Testament prophecies uh, 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 containing uh, about the Messiah. Almost 300, is your next blank there, almost 300 references to the Messiah that were fulfilled in Jesus alone. That's right, Jenna, 300 with four exclamation points. That's how amazing it is, right? Not three, four, All right? Now, let's take a look at a couple of them. His birth in Bethlehem was predicted. His announcement by a messenger, uh, John the Baptist. His entrance into Jerusalem on a colt. He betrayed, would be betrayed by a friend, Judas. His hands and feet would be pierced, crucifixion, before it was even invented and perfected by the Romans, quote unquote, if you want to call it that, perfected. Uh, he would be wounded by his enemies, betrayed for exactly 30 pieces of silver. Uh, he would be spit upon and beaten. He'd be betrayed. The betrayal money would be thrown into the temple and then given to 
a potter's field. Uh, and listen, he would be silent before his accusers. Turn to 1 Peter 2. This is amazing. What an example. This passage not only fulfills, obviously, uh, the prophecy with Isaiah, uh, but listen to this. I, as 1 Peter chapter 2. This is also an example for us. When people persecute us, watch this. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2, starting in verse 18. Talks about submission, okay? And the whole point is, uh, to, and being a witness, okay? And uh, anybody, uh, sometimes being a witness, remember the apostles were witnesses? You think they had a little bit of persecution once in a while? Uh, yeah, and then eventually were horribly murdered for it, okay? He says this, verse 18, he says, slaves, submit yourself to your masters with all respect, not only to those who are good and considerate, but also to those who are what? You mean if my employer's kind of one of those mean and nasty ones that I still gotta be nice? Yeah, because who you're really working for in the workplace? It's Jesus. And you're a commercial. Right? That's right. He says, for it's uh, uh, commendable if a man bears up under pain of unjust suffering because he's conscious of God. Okay, but how is it to your credit if you receive a beating for doing wrong and endure? Right? Okay. He says, but if you suffer for doing good and you endure, this is commendable before God. Well, why? Well, first of all, it shouldn't shock us. To this you were what? Called. What? We're called to suffer for Jesus? Yeah. Because, why? Well, because he's our master. We're a Christian, a follower of Christ. So Jesus had a cakewalk of a life. Everybody loved him. It was great. Oh, I'm sorry. Yeah, wrong translation. So it said there, he says, no, we're supposed to be a follower of Christ because Christ suffered for you, leaving you a what? An example that you should follow in his step. In other words, what he did, you do. We all do. If you're going to say Christian, you're supposed to follow Christ. Not your flesh. Not what's expedient. Follow Christ. And here's what he did when people came up and did what they did to him. He committed no sin and no deceit was found in his mouth. When they hurled their insults at him, he did not retaliate. When he suffered, he made what? I'm going to get you, man. You're going to court. I'm going to get the best lawyer here in Vegas, and you're going downtown. Don't you ever? No. He said he made no threats. Listen. Instead, he entrusted himself to him, God, who judges justly. Wow. Is that what we do when people make fun of us as a Christian? Threaten us as a Christian? Yeah. You can cry like that. Okay, if you want. I understand the pain. Okay. <laughs> What's our attitude? Or we're going to get him back. Eye for an eye, tooth for tooth. That's what it's all about, isn't it? No, it's not. That's what, unfortunately, a lot of people do. I'm going to get you back, right? That's not what it is. Okay. I'd read, I don't know much about I've learned you just, mm, it, it's a phrase. It's called leave room for God. Amen. Right? Because if you get out of line, you start doing eye for an eye, tooth for tooth, guess who's going to get a you, because God disciplines those whom he loves, his kids. Now, if the other person is doing something wrong, guess what they're headed for? Spanking. Anybody learn that God dishes out way better spankings than anything we could ever dream of? Right? Leave room for God. Okay? But anyway, let's continue on. He's silent before his accusers. He's crucified with the thieves. People would gamble for his garments. His side would be pierced. None of his bones would be broken. His body would not decay. His burial uh, would be in a rich man's tomb and the darkness covering the earth. Remember that historical document we read a few weeks back in our study? That is actually recorded about the darkness that occurred during the crucifixion of Jesus is recorded in an uh, extra-biblical source. 
Absolutely amazing. Many of these prophecies were made some, some of them 750 years before the birth of Christ, yet they're amazingly accurate. And so let's take a look at the estimate, uh, estimate of this. You mean to tell me that Jesus is the Messiah? What's all this? So what? So we fulfilled a few prophecies. That doesn't mean nothing. Oh no, they doubted me. Oh, what will I do? Oh, I feel so like a worm. Uh, how about quote this to him? Uh, did you realize that the combined probability against just 17? 17. And he did it around 300. 17 being fulfilled by chance in the life of Jesus Christ is one chance in 480 billion times 1 billion times 1 trillion. Or 480, and I don't have any clue how many zeros that is. You can see it for yourself. Only someone who approached the study of the Bible with a presupposition that it's not true would deny this that verifies, uh, would deny this, that this verifies its divine origin and even that person will be challenged to the depths of these souls with his facts. Excuse me? You gotta have more faith to say that Jesus wasn't the Messiah just on 17 prophecies than for me to say, oh yeah, I can go to sleep at night. This is common sense, pure logic, right? And again, what, what is there so scary about somebody confronting? What is so scary about somebody asking that question? If you're armed, if you're ready to give a defense, always, if you have this info with you, isn't it exciting to be able to share that? Absolutely. A transformed life. Let's take a look. Here's the last one. So we not only see Jesus' own words that we say he was who he said he was, uh, the witnesses of the apostles, the witnesses of prophecy, but let's take a look at transformed life. If Jesus really was God and he really was the Messiah and he really came to save us from our sins, to rescue us, to take us to heaven, you would think, and if that really happened and we're really involved with the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation and become born again, that there be some sort of evidence that that's really true and that really happened. How many guys have seen the Holy Spirit with your actual eyeballs? Thank you that nobody raised your hand, right? So how do you know he's real? Just like the wind, as Jesus used that parable, remember? I don't see the wind. You can see the effects of it. And how do you know a person is really born again and Jesus was who he said he was? You look at the effects on their life, Right? And that's what he's talking about here. One of the greatest evidences of the truthfulness and validity of the Christian faith is that of a transformed life. A transformed life. Now we just discussed how the apostles were transformed by being a fearful band of a group of men who for the most part lost their lives and again in a horrible fashion for the sake of the good news, the gospel. But what about the first century? Is the message of God's word still changing lives today? If the Bible is truly God's word and if Jesus is truly God's son, then logically we should expect to see some similar transformations taking place throughout the rest of history. The problem is there's zero evidence of it. No. Excuse me, where do you want to start? And he just gives us a couple examples, uh, three of them uh, throughout the ages. One of these guys, and again, I like he picks the examples of the skeptic. That person says, you're the one who checked your brain at the door. Christianity is a blind leap in the faith. You have to have zero intelligence to become a Christian, Right? And so what happens is what God does is he takes these people and they do have great intellect, but at least for, he keeps them apparently uh, with being honest to the point where they have to deal with the facts. One of them is this guy, Sir William Ramsey, uh, 1881. He was a young man of sterling integrity, unimpeachable character, culture, and high education. That's the crumpet. And so it's got to, you almost have to say it like that, right? Uh, he had a sincere desire to know the truth. That's good. Uh, now, he had been educated in an atmosphere of doubt. 
which uh, early brought him to a conviction that the Bible was what? Fraudulent, not true. So listen to what he did. Uh, he had spent years deliberately preparing himself for the announced task. So he let everybody know this is his agenda of heading an exploration edition into Asia Minor and Palestine, the home of the Bible, where he would, quote, dig up the evidence that the book, the Bible, was the product of ambitious monks and not the book of heaven that it claimed to be. Now, and he went for the heart. He chose what he thought was the weakest part of the whole New Testament, and that was the story specifically of Paul's travels. Okay? These had never been thoroughly investigated by anybody on the spot, and so he announced his plan to take the book of Acts as a guide. I'm just going to follow wherever it says to go and see if it's accurate. And uh, he took Jesus Paul, uh, made over the same routes that he followed, and uh, to prove that the apostle could never have made them as they were described. Now listen, quote, Equipped as no other man had been, he went to the home of the Bible, where he spent, listen, 15 years. Thorough investigation, 15 years, literally digging for the evidence for what? Of why you can't trust the Bible, right? Then in 1896, he published a large volume on, quote, St. Paul, the Traveler, and the Roman Citizen. Check it out for yourself. Now, listen to this. The book caused a furor of dismay among the skeptics of the world. Its attitude was utterly unexpected because it was contrary to the announced intention of the author years before. Remember, I'm going out there on this expedition. They haven't seen hide no hair, apparently, of this guy, apparently, for 15 years. He comes out with this book. Before he left, he says, I'm going out there to get the evidence to prove this is a bunch of baloney. He publishes the book. Man, that's a good marketing technique. You get all the skeptics sucked into buying your book. But anyway, I don't know. He probably had good intentions. Uh, now, the chagrin and the confusion of Bible components was complete. Okay, but their chagrin and confusion increased for more than, listen, 20 years more, book after book from the same author came from the press, each filled with additional evidence of the exact, the exact minute truthfulness of the whole New Testament as tested by the spade on the spot. In other words, he went to the actual site, dug, found it. It's accurate every single time, every single time. And remember, he went in. I'm going to prove it wrong. Okay? But listen, the evidence was so overwhelming that many infidels announced their repudiation of their former unbelief and what? Accepted Christianity. Now, remember what I saw, as we saw uh, before, and I've stated many times. Historians say that there was, again, three reasons why they believe, looking at the facts, of why the early church eventually overtook, if you will, the Roman Empire. And the three things that we saw was, uh, one, how they loved each other, right? And what an attraction that is, right? What a concept. Maybe we should try that someday here. What do you think? That people would come and see that we actually love each other and we care about each other and we don't beat each other up and, and we just, we, we can't wait to, we, we spend time together outside of services and nobody says we have to. Huh? And they come and they see that and they're going, wow, you don't get that in the world. Can I be a part? Major witness. Major witnesses. They will know you're my disciples if you love one another. The second one is their death and how they died. As we just saw, amazing. What? You're still praying and these guys are beating your brains out? Stephen, even the Father, forgive them. Whoa. Maybe there's more truth to this Christianity. Remember, the third one was their ability to give an intellectual response for their faith. In other words, they were well-equipped. And that's what this book did. It's like, wow. 
of this part. He says not, this, not just the repudiation of their former belief and accepted Christianity. And these books have stood the test of time, not one having been refuted, nor have I found even any attempt to refute them. I can't. It, it would be foolish. So somebody comes up to you, you mean to tell me you believe in the Apostle Paul and that he was real and you can trust the Bible and all these places said he went, that they actually went there? That's a bunch of baloney's. Oh no, they asked me that question. I don't know. And I'm going to make fun of me. And I better run out of this lunchroom like that guy in the opening story. No. Have you heard about Sir William Ramsey? That exciting chap who had integrity and unimpeachable character. Do you know anything about that? Let me tell you. I can't wait to tell you. Thanks for asking that question. Do you see the theme again? Once we do what Peter says to do, not sometimes, but always study. Be that disciple, that disciplined learner. Get the facts. You can't wait for those questions, right? That's what the scripture says we're supposed to do. And that's what it did, man. I can't even refute them. You would actually have to have more faith to continue to maintain that belief. Once you deal with the facts. And that's what he says there. Frank Morrison, he's an English journalist who set out to prove the story of Christ's resurrection was nothing but a myth. Uh, his probings, though, led him to the point where he placed his faith in guess who? Jesus, the risen Christ. He went on and wrote a book about his findings called Who Moved the Stone? Not the cheese, that's a different book. Who Moved the Stone? Okay. And he said, I wanted to take this last phase of the life of Jesus with all its quick and pulsating drama, its sharp, clear-cut background of antiquity, and its a tremendous psychological and human interest distributive of its overgrowth and primitive beliefs and dogmatic uh, suppositions <laughs> and to see this supremely great person as he truly was. Woo! Okay, let's continue on. I need not say nor describe here how fully 10 years later the opportunity came to study the life of Christ as I had long wanted to study it, to investigate the origins of its literature, to sift some of the evidence at, at first hand and to form my own judgment on the problem which it presents. I will only say that it affected a revolution in my thought things emerged from that old world story which previously I should have thought impossible. Slowly but very definitely, conviction grew that the drama of those unforgettable weeks of human history was stranger and deeper than it seemed. It was the strength of many notable things in the story which first arrested and held my interest. It was only later that the irresistible logic of their meaning came into view. Wow, my theory is that guy has to be a preacher because it always takes preachers 16 minutes to say something they could have said in 30 seconds. Have you said, have you been there? I can't believe you agreed with that. Yeah, thank you, thank you, backtrack. All right. But in other words, what the guy was saying, I went out to basically disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ, but I'm confronted with the facts, wrote a book on it. Come on, give me a break. Irresistible logic says, it's true. That's really what he's saying. I'll translate that for you. I'll give you that gift. One more. C.S. Lewis, the top page 132. British author, noted for his wit, imagination, clarity, and expression. That's right. Skeptic until he was converted, 1931. Here's the process as recorded by some of these nuggets here. 1928, he said, uh, um, there's a religious re revival going on in our undergraduates, run by a Dr. Uh, Buchmann. Uh, he gets a number of young men together. Some reports say women too, but I believe not. And they confess their sins to one another. Jolly, ain't it? But uh, what can you do? If you try to suppress it, you only make martyrs. <laughs> you know, skeptic at that point, it sounds like. 1930, two years later. Terrible things are happening to me. Now, I know it's the chicken, but I think it might be deeper than that. He says that the spirit or real eye is showing an alarming tendency to become much more personal and is taking the offense and behaving just like God. 
Is there conviction going on? What's going on? You better come on Monday, he says, at the latest, or I may have entered a monastery. Then he tells his brother a year later. He said, I well remember that day, 1931, when we made a visit to Whipsnade Zoo. Or I don't know, how do you, is it Whipsnade? Whipsnade, Whipsnade. How would you say it? Snade? Whipsnade. Okay. It was during that outing that he made his decision to rejoin the church. This seemed to me no sudden plunge into a new life, but rather a slow, steady convalescence from a deep-seated spiritual illness of long standing. And then in 1933, since I had begun to pray, notice the initial thing. There's a religious revival going on. And then now he's down to, since I began to pray, uh, <laughs> I find my extreme view of personality changing. Uh, my own empirical self is becoming more important, uh, and this is exactly the opposite of what? Self-love. You, you, you know, to me, one of the biggest acid tests that somebody really is a Christian, when they are more concerned out of their mouth and their life with Savior love than self-love. Why? Because he must increase, I must decrease. And if you're living a life, it's all about self, what you want, me, myself, and I, the unholy trinity. And if you don't get it, there comes the war. Versus even if you don't get your way, you're so focused on Jesus, and even if people make fun of you and all that stuff, I entrust it to Jesus. He'll take care of it for me. Wow. Why? Because he left us an example. That's what he did, right? And that's what he's talking about. He says, my, it's, it's the opposite of self-love. You don't teach a seed to grow into treehood by throwing it into the fire, uh, and it has to become a good seed before it's worth burying. Now, before he died in 1963, 30 years later, he wrote a number of books, Miracles, The Problem of Pain, Mere Christianity, and Mere Christianity, once again, to close, here's his statement context. towards the end, apparently, uh, uh, he says, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says he's a poached egg, that's rotten, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. How many times have you heard that? said he has not left that open to us okay folks that's what we need to do and that, that final note over there you can read he's talking about uh we need to and i'll just we'll get the back it says right there at the end peter writes at the top of page 133 that first paragraph towards the bottom says peter writes but sanctify christ as lord in your hearts always being ready to make a defense apologian from where we get apologetics to make a defense to everyone who asks you to give an account for the hope that is in you, yet with gentleness and reverence. If all we did, just in this room, really took to heart just the few things that we, we in this one chapter, and we really took it to heart, and we really put this and committed it to memory, what's there to be afraid of? You'll find that the average skeptic of, I used to be one, Typically, you'll, you could narrow it down to 10, sometimes even about six questions. It's the same goofball six questions. I, study more. Always be prepared. But even if you can get the six big ones and, and you became a master of being prepared at that, 
Why would we ever be afraid to witness? Right? But that's just it. Do we take the words of Peter serious when he says, always being ready? Or do we treat it like an option? Or it's just for Tom, because he likes those intellectual arguments. <laughs> but me, I am more like, I, I like the funnies, because they're funny. <laughs> no, it's for all of us. We all need to be prepared. Amen? Let's pray. Well, hi, this is Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church, and I hope you enjoyed today's study. But before you go, let me ask you one final question. Are you sure that if you were to die today, that you go to heaven and not hell? Before you answer that, let me share a couple things with you. Did you know that the Bible says that God is holy and that we are not? And the Bible also says that the wages of our sin or our unholiness is death. In other words, when we die, and it's coming for each one of us, we're all marching towards the grave at different speeds, but it's going to happen. The Bible says, therefore, since the wages of our sin is death, we deserve to die and go straight to hell and not to heaven. And that's bad enough, but to make matters worse, we don't want to admit this. God already knows. He knows uh, all of our behavior, everything, our thoughts, what we've done, what even we're going to do. He knows it all. He's gone. Even though he already knows this, we don't want to admit this. And so out of love and mercy, God gave us something called his law or the Ten Commandments. It's kind of like his x-ray into our heart to show us what he already knows, that he is holy and that we are not. And it's this unholiness or sin that separates us from him. Let's take a look at God's x-ray, if you will, his divine law, to show us what he already knows. The Ten Commandments, uh, the ninth one, says this, you shall not bear false witness. Okay, that's called lying. Okay. And if you've ever told a lie once, which we all have, myself included, the Bible says that makes you a liar, okay? The, the, another commandment says, you shall not steal, okay? Uh, and you might think, well, that's something that everybody does. Well, it doesn't make it right, and it demonstrates what God is trying to show us, that uh, we all have sin, and it's separating us from him. Even if you took a pencil in the third grade from somebody, if you did it without permission, that's stealing. And so now you've become a thief. The Bible says that you shall not use the Lord's name in vain. And how interesting it is and unfortunate that the only name under heaven by which men might be saved, the name Jesus Christ, has now become a common cuss word. The Bible says that God is so holy that even his name is holy. If you've taken the Lord's name in vain and used it as a cuss word or even flippantly, the Bible calls that the sin of blasphemy. And so now you become a blasphemer. The Bible says you shall not commit adultery. And Jesus says if you even look at another person with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery in your heart. And finally, the Bible says uh, you shall not murder. And you might think, well, hey, I haven't done that one. Really? Well, again, the Bible says that the sin of hatred is the same as the sin of murder. The only difference is you pulled the trigger, if you will, in your heart. You wish they were dead. And in God's eyes, it's the same thing in principle. Folks, that's only just a couple of the Ten Commandments. We didn't even go through all of them. But I think you're starting to get the picture. The Bible is correct. We have all fallen short of the glory of God, myself included. And that we are separated from God as a result. And so when our time comes, we're not automatically going to heaven. We are headed for judgment. We are headed for hell. Now let me tell you the good news.
The good news is that God so loved the world that he gave his one and only begotten son, Jesus Christ, to save us. Jesus Christ died on the cross. It was the death penalty of its day. He paid in full uh, the price for our sins to be forgiven. Let me give you an analogy. For instance, even today, we could see that a person could commit a crime. Uh, they, they cannot reverse it. The, the sentence has been passed. The judge has uh, slammed his gavel, and they are ushered off into their jail cell. And in this particular crime, they are going to receive the death penalty. And so they're behind bars just waiting for the time, waiting for the call for them to go and uh, receive the death penalty. But believe it or not, as we know, there is a way that a person can get off a death row. And that is if the one in authority, the governor, would grant them a pardon. Now, they didn't earn it. Uh, they certainly don't deserve it. And there's nothing they could do uh, to earn it because nothing can reverse their crime. Okay? Yet the one in authority has that ability to grant them a pardon. Well, can I tell you something? That's what God has done through Jesus Christ. The cross was the death penalty of the day. God sent his one and only son to die on the cross, to take the death penalty in our place, and that if we would just receive his pardon for all of our sins, God is willing to allow us to get off a death row. He's willing to forgive us completely of all of our sins. That's the good news that I want to share with you. God loves you. The Bible says that God is not willing that anyone should perish, but everyone come to repentance. Won't you, if that's you, call upon the name of Jesus Christ right now? Won't you ask him to forgive you of your sins? The Bible says that if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Won't you do that now, wherever you are? Please, take God up on his amazing, loving offer. I'll let you down. Man will let you down. People will let you down. But God never will. He wants to adopt you into his forever family. He loves you. He's willing to forgive you of anything and everything you've ever done, past, present, and future. It's amazing. Please, call upon Jesus now. Well, this has been Pastor Billy Crone of Sunrise Baptist Church. If there's anything that we can do for you, please don't hesitate to ask. Our number and information will come up here on the screen here shortly. And remember, I hope to see you in heaven. God bless. Thank you for watching this presentation from Sunrise Baptist Church. If you would like to send us a letter or any other kind of postage, you can reach us at 1780 Betty Lane, Las Vegas, Nevada, 89156. For more information, you can give us a call at 702-452-8599 or email us at bcrone at getalifemedia.com or you can visit our website at www.getalifemedia.com. Billy Crone and this ministry can also be found on Facebook and Twitter. Join us for services at www.sunriselv.com.